Thanks for pulling through there, Deborah. Okay, so what was our God question from last week? Joshua. Oh, how about, I, how about I ask the question, and then maybe the answer will pop into your mind. If God, if we cannot keep God's law, what is its purpose? To show us the sinful nature of our hearts. Good. That's one part, to show us the sinful nature of our hearts. What else? Um, to, uh, to show us the... Oh, oh. To show us God's holy nature, our sinful hearts, and our need for a Savior. Excellent. There we go. Kara, you want to do that one too? That you may know the holy nature of our God, the sinful nature of hearts, and the need for a Savior. Excellent. Now, I was thinking about a verse. Um, Can I really quickly share with you a super cool command that God gave his people? Yes, they're so cool. Okay. I'm going to pick out a command from Leviticus. Some people don't read a lot of Leviticus. It's a book of the Bible. It's one of the first five books, and some people think it's really hard to understand. It's not really super hard to understand, but it's kind of weird. But in the book, there are a lot of super cool commands. And this command shows me the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of my heart, and my need for a Savior. Leviticus 19.14, God gives this command. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God because I am the Lord. I love that verse. God is saying, if you come across someone who's deaf, who can't hear, don't make fun of them and be mean to them because they can't hear you. And if you come across someone who's blind, don't put a rock in front of them that they're going to trip over and you laugh at them. Don't hold a stick in front of them because they can't see. This verse is about God saying, don't bully people. Now, what I love about that is it shows me the holy nature of God. God is fully good. And so his heart for us is always good. He wants to protect, especially those of us who are weak and who have problems like being deaf or blind. But it also shows me the sinful nature of my heart because when I was young, I was a bully. I liked to make fun of people. I thought it was fun to pick on people who were different. I thought it was fun to pick on people who were maybe not as cool or smart as me or strong as me. And so when I read this verse when I was younger, I realized, whoa, I need a savior. I need someone to change my heart because it's very easy for me to be a bully and I didn't want to be a bully. So I wanted to share that verse with you because I think it's super, super great and important. And it's a good example of what we talked about last week. Our question for this week is what is sin? What is sin? You might hear that word a lot. Sometimes we talk about it. The blood of Jesus covers sin. Hi, Eden. How you doing? Welcome to the stage. Um, And our answer for this week is sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. It's not being or doing what he requires. Sin is whenever we reject God, forget it, God, I'm going to do my own thing, or ignore him, whatever, in the world that he's created. When we go about our everyday life, rejecting or ignoring God. And our memory verse, if we can try and remember it, is, drum roll, everyone who sins Wait, I can't even see over there. There we go. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4. So I'm going to pray. Bless you guys. Then you guys can head upstairs. You guys be a blessing to your Sunday school teachers by having your ears open and listening and digging into your lesson. 
God, as these guys go upstairs, would you bless them? Would you bless their teachers? Would you drive the gospel deep into their heart? May they recognize their need for a Savior. May they look to you for that deliverance and for that salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, God bless you guys. Well, good morning once again. And once again, it is good to be back. Whoa, this is a really flimsy. Hopefully it can, uh, there we go. Let's take a moment to pray. God, as we open up your word, as we return to the gospel of Mark, would you reveal yourself to us? This is a passage where you ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? And I pray that we would recognize coming out of this morning the gravity of that question, the importance, all that hangs on that question. Would you open your word to us by our spirit and uh, give us insight into who you are and give us faith and courage to respond appropriately. In your name, amen. Uh, The turning point of many movies that leave an impression on us um, and upon our culture, widely speaking, are these moments where a character is revealed to be someone greater than who you were introduced to them first as in the movie. We often meet a character early on in the movie. We're given a particular impression about who they are. We kind of label them quickly, kind of come up with a summation. And then something happens, this revelatory moment, where their significance and importance is amplified. In some of my favorite movies, the revelation of this true identity it just dramatically shifts the plot. And you're forced to reevaluate everything that has come in, everything you've seen in the movie up to this point, and your imagination begins to churn, thinking ahead, wow, what are the ramifications? If this person, who I thought was this, is now this, wow, where is this going to go? Uh, some of the movies that are favorites of mine where this happens is Matrix. Pretty famous. We're introduced to Neo, mild-mannered computer hacker, who it's eventually revealed is the one. In Lord of the Rings, we've got Strider, who's the quiet, unassuming ranger, who's revealed to be the long-lost king, King Aragorn, who comes to reclaim his throne and his rightful rule. In the Lego movie, you have Emmett, high-energy, low-IQ hero, uh, who comes to discover that he is the special Right? Sometimes a movie will even lead us up right into the moment of this moment of revelation and then hit the pause button and leave us hanging until the next movie, which is what we saw happen in The Force Awakens, right? that final scene, Rey handing out the lightsaber. Who is Rey? There's obviously something significant about who she is. Is she Luke's daughter? Is she a Skywalker by lineage? Is she someone else? Why does she have all these Force powers? We have to wait until The Last Jedi comes out uh, next December. Yeah, how many sleeps? Exactly. Too many. Too many. Today's text in the Gospel of Mark acts like one of these turning points in Mark's Gospel. If you played out Mark as a movie, if you're reading through it quickly and just picturing scene after scene in your mind's eye, this would be the big reveal moment 
where a concealed identity is going to be fully exposed. We're going to find something out about Jesus that has been alluded to and hinted at and pieces of the puzzle have started to come together and now there's full disclosure. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 and we're going to start at verse 27. Now, the first half of Mark's gospel slowly builds in tension up to this point. Mark's is a fast-paced gospel. He's layering teachings and ministries of Jesus. Uh, We see Jesus doing miraculous things. He's teaching in powerful ways. He's confronting both Roman and Jewish authorities, so it's kind of hard to figure out whose side he's on. He's telling about the kingdom, but he's doing more than talking about this kingdom of God idea. He's making it real through miracles. He's doing things that are bringing life and hope and, uh, and, and renewed opportunity to thousands of people. But he's also doing things that are bringing confusion, that are sowing confusion. People are sometimes puzzled at the things that he says or the things that he does. And sometimes there's even animosity towards what he's been doing or what he's been saying. You think about the reaction when he claims to be able to forgive sins. That's probably the most, religiously speaking, the most controversial thing that Jesus says or does in the first eight chapters of Mark. He's he's claiming to be able to do something that only God can do. He's claiming to have authority to forgive and cancel out sin. And so in the first eight chapters of Mark, there's this slow boil that percolates this question that Mark wants us to put ever increasingly before us. Who is Jesus? Like, who, who is he? And where is this whole kingdom of God ministry thing going? Everyone wants to know. Jesus' rise to fame has been meteoric. Over a very short amount of time, he's become the talk of the region. People have observed his ministry, and, and they've been putting these pieces together, and they're, they're trying to get a full picture of who Jesus is. And in Mark 8, verses 27 to 30, a fuller and deeper disclosure regarding Jesus' identity occurs. And with the disclosure of that identity, with that plot twist, comes an insurrection, comes a violent overthrow, as we're going to see in the rest of Mark, of people's expectations, of, of people's entire worldviews about who they presumed Jesus to be and where they thought the plot line was going. And now that this is been discovered, everything kind of gets turned on its head. And the rest of Mark, there's a huge tone shift that happens. And Mark becomes much darker, becomes much more ominous, as we'll find out as we move into verses 31 and following next week. So let's read Mark 8, verses 27 to 30. Follow along, Bible or in in an electronic device. It'll be on the screen as well. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Who do people say that I am? That's a loaded question. Mark is setting up this one-two punch that's going to serve 
as the shift in tone for the rest of the gospel. Who do people say that I am? Jesus is drawing his disciples into some really, really deep theological waters. He's getting them to articulate other people's Christology. Christology is the arena of theology where we study the person of Jesus. Ology, study of Christos, the Christ. Um, Christology is all these doctrines and teachings around who Jesus is, his essential nature, what his purpose is, etc. That's what Jesus is asking his disciples to articulate what they've heard around them. And in verse 28, they say, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Notice a few things about what they share with Jesus. First of all, notice that everyone has an opinion on Jesus. He's been too significant a figure during the last uh, few years to not have an opinion about him. And even today, it's pretty rare to find a person who, uh, a person of any serious depth of thought or education who doesn't have an opinion on Jesus. He's too significant a a person within the scope of human history to not have an opinion on. He shaped world and history culture more than any other person, I would argue. Many uh, secular historians would argue the same thing. He's just too compelling and explosive a figure. You've got to kind of have an opinion. You've got to have a take on Jesus, even if it's a non-religious take. Everyone who wants a coherent, intelligent worldview has to somehow give an account for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, second, notice that the opinion of Jesus, sorry, notice that the opinion of the people is that Jesus is definitely someone important. They say, well, maybe he's John the Baptist, returned from the dead. John's been killed at this point in Mark's gospel. Maybe he's Elijah. Malachi 4, I think 4.3, talks about how before the great and terrible day of the Lord, when God's judgment will come upon the nations, he will send Elijah again. So is that a fulfillment of this prophecy? Maybe Jesus is the Elijah who was to come. Or maybe he's just another prophet in in line with all of the great prophets in Jewish history. So John, Elijah, a prophet, these are all movers and shakers within first century Jewish imagination. So no one's opinion of Jesus is like, eh. They're all like, he's definitely someone important. He's someone of, he's someone who's glorious. He's weighty. He's significant. And they're trying to land on exactly in what ways he is. Jesus was real, and he was profoundly good, and he was compelling, and his ministry and teaching is explosive. And so people are trying to make heads or tails of it, and they're trying to um, account within their worldview for someone for whom up to this point there hasn't been a grid, there hasn't been a kind of a slot in their thinking where they can say, oh yeah, this is totally what Jesus is. So there's all these different opinions, but everyone has an opinion, and everyone's opinion of Jesus is that he's someone important and significant. And the third thing to notice is, notice how weird some people's views of Jesus are. Some think he's John the Baptist. Think about that for a second. Jesus and John the Baptist were seen together in public. They were cousins. And some people legitimately think, like Herod does earlier in Mark, well, I don't know how it works, but maybe we killed, you know, Herod uh, um, ends up, 
John dies at the hands of Herod, and then Jesus' ministry explodes, and uh, it, it, it's John come back from the dead. So weird, right? Like, it's not even like reincarnation, where John died at a different timeline than Jesus, and now it, it's just strange. Um, and so that kind of, I thought about that a lot, and I thought, you know, like, today, like then, there is a lot of weird, far-out theories about who Jesus is. I've heard anything from alien from another planet to, yeah, some kind of reincarnation of divine essence or Christ, Christ consciousness that kind of cycles through. Like, I, I don't know, like, um, if people would be so bold, what would, if we, if we stop 10 people on the street corner in Nelson and say, who do you think Jesus was? What are the kinds of responses that you think we would, we would get from people? And, and you can just call them out. There's no right or wrong answer. I'm just curious. You've lived in, most of you guys have lived in Nelson more than, longer than I have. So what do you think we'd hear? Good teacher. What was the other one? Sorry? Really good man. Certainly a noble character. Yeah? What else? Yeah, some kind of a guru. Um, maybe they'd say a prophet of some kind. Depending on how deep they are into New Age, again, they might come into a pseudo-Hindu New Age conception that would say, well, he's some kind of semi-miraculous manifestation of cosmic divine energy, like a, he, or he's, a, he's, a, he's the um, ultimate embodiment of a kind of universal Christ consciousness energy of the universe kind of perfectly distilled in its purest form. Maybe he's an enlightened one, kind of in the vein of the Buddha. You're probably going to hear he's some kind of hippie beatnik who just was just about loving people, right? It's all about love. Just someone who came on the scene and just all about peace and love. Some people would say he's a myth, for sure. That's, that's definitely gained traction in the last five to seven years, especially in kind of internet culture. If you surf the interwebs, you'll hear more and more discussion about how um, there's a, um, some pretty strong language used around how uh, the, the whole thing is a, is a myth. Uh, spoiler alert, no, no one who seriously looked into that can sustain that view. That, that is, uh, th- there's not even, there aren't any secular historians of any uh, weight and significance who will talk about Jesus as a myth. The, the farthest you're going to get is they're going to say, Jesus of Nazareth, clearly a historical figure, how these stories got formulated later on, later on and changed, we don't know. But then you're running into all kinds of problems in terms of Gospels like Mark happen very, show up on the scene very soon after Jesus. Way too soon for them to be hundreds of years later, hey, let's change some details and make it so that Jesus resurrected and he did all these miracles. Um, You also have to deal with the question of why would a first century group of Jews, when there were lots of messiahs during that time who lived and died, why would they make up a story about uh, one of their messiahs who gets crucified and then resurrection, uh, resurrected. Uh, again, that's something that not only wouldn't occur to a first century Jewish mind, um, it would actually be, that's bad PR if you're trying to sell Christianity on that, on that basis. Because Jews believe there was going to be one resurrection at the end of time, living and the dead, all resurrected and judged. So for a resurrection to happen outside of that timeline wouldn't have been an attractive, cool, wow, this Christianity thing must be true. It's not a way to trick um, or dupe people into believing something. 
So lots of different views about who Jesus is. But people hold an opinion of Jesus within our community. There's no doubt about that. Jesus is identified generally as someone important. And there's a lot of weird ideas about who Jesus is. Who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And then there's this pause, right? I picture they're walking along, they're going about their day, Jesus throws this question down, everyone's kind of nervous looking at each other, who's going to answer? And they kind of throw out what they've heard, waiting for Jesus to say yes or no or comment. He doesn't. They continue walking, it's kind of awkward, they're looking at each other, did we give the right answer? Are we in the ballpark? And then he stops and he turns and he says, who do you say I am? I mean, imagine staring into Jesus' eyes and have him ask you as an individual, who do you say that I am? Having to respond to that question on the spot, right? This is the part of the movie where the tension's been building, the music has swelled, and now there's this, the music cuts out and there's this uh, pregnant silence that is always comes before this revelatory moment. It's preparing us for the revelation that's going to turn the whole story on its head. And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Or some translations will say, you are the Christ. That's, that's big. This word, Christos, hasn't appeared in the Gospel of Mark since Mark 1, verses 1. The beginning of the Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word Christos is a word here that means anointed one. In Greek, it's Christos. Um, Some translations will translate it as Hebrew because anointed one in Hebrew is uh, Moshiach, which we translate as Messiah. So Christ and Messiah are interchangeable. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're not referring, that's not as like, you know, given in surname. Uh, That's Jesus, the Christ, or Jesus, the Messiah. Peter says, you are the Christ. And with this disclosure, what comes into view, although we, if you're just reading Mark for the first time, you're not seeing this right away, but what comes into view is that, oh, this is someone more important than we originally had thought. There were some pretty significant ideas about who Jesus was to this point. On the same level as like an Elijah or one of a great line of prophets. But this ups the stakes See, Christ or Messiah, those are terms that occur all the time in the Old Testament. Anointed ones. Kings, priests, and prophets at different points in their ministry were all anointed. Christs or Messiahs or anointed ones were those who were chosen and empowered by God in the Old Testament for a particular task. But again, they were all... Christ's or Messiah's or anointed ones in like the lowercase letter of the term. So maybe there's a king in Israel, maybe there's a prophet, maybe there was a priest. They were anointed ones, but they were lowercase a anointed ones. They were um, Messiahs, but they were lowercase m Messiahs. Because in the Old Testament, both its narrative trajectory and the particular prophecies indicated that at some point, all of these little Christs and little messiahs, these little anointed ones, were pointing to a future kind of super messiah. Somewhere coming down the pipe is going to be a super 
anointed one, capital A. And this special anointed one is going to be someone who delivers God, God's people from their enemies. This super anointed one is going to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And when Peter says, you are the Messiah, he doesn't say, I think you're like an anointed one. You're in that long line of some of these special prophets, uh, priests, and kings. The confession of Peter, not confession in the sense that he did something wrong, but a confession meaning conviction, religious bone-deep conviction, is you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. Not just in line, you are in a distinct category, all on your own. He's the one. Jesus is the special. Jesus is the true and rightful king of Gondor who's come to reclaim his throne and who's going to reestablish the kingdom. And this is huge because at this point in the gospel, Mark makes a dramatic turn, which we're going to, again, see unfold next week because we're going to learn about what kind of anointed one is this Jesus. Because people had all kinds of expectations about what it meant to be an anointed one and what that would mean for them personally. Now, for some people, this feels like splitting hairs to a lot of people. They think prophet, wise man, spiritual guru, Christ. What is the big deal? Like, why, it's not, does it really honestly matter if we kind of split hairs on the exact nature of Jesus' identity? Why don't we just let Jesus be who, he's obviously a good person and an influential, and let him just be to people what um, they want him to be. Why, why drill down into this kind of detail and, and you know, lowercase Messiah, uppercase Messiah, just, okay, he's an anointed one, and he's just part of a grand human religious tradition. I think, hum, hum, humbly, I would, I would put it before you, I think you can do that with probably any other human being who's ever existed. You can have a difference of opinions, and someone's going to say this person's a prophet, someone's going to say this person isn't, and okay, we can argue back and forth and have opinions. And in a lot of ways, it's going to be fairly inconsequential to our everyday lives. But I, I don't think you can do that with Jesus. I don't think you can... Um, I think it's dangerous and foolish to not drill down into the precision of who Jesus reveals himself to be and how we understand and articulate who Jesus is because he's making claims that no one else in human history has made. There's at least two reasons I would share this morning about why this is a big deal and why we do need to be very careful in terms of how we understand who Jesus is. Number one... All of Christianity rises or falls on the identity of Jesus. The the gospel that Christianity holds out, the good news that God came, died, and was resurrected, and all the beautiful complexities and hope-filled extensions of what that means for our lives here and later, that all rises and falls on whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One. If he is the Christ, then that means there's unparalleled power and promise and hope attached to him that is attached to nobody else. If he is not the Christ, maybe if 
even if he's just a Christ, he's one of many. He's kind of like a Buddha figure. He's kind of belongs in the kind of the uh, re- uh, religious hall of fame, along with a, b- a bunch of other significant religious leaders. Then the central promise held out by Christians for over two thousand years is a joke and it's rubbish, and it's an illusion. It's a it's a falsehood. I mean, think about the gospel. When I talk about the gospel, there's three major pillars that uphold the gospel. The gospel is manger, cross, crown. God himself, second person of the Trinity, became a human being, fully human and fully divine, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law of God perfectly, died a perfect death, died to uh, take upon himself the judgment for sin, that we might be forgiven, those who claim that forgiveness and ask for it from him. And then crown, resurrection, and uh, and ascension. This God-man was resurrected and then ascended, was lifted up, and now is the Lord of heaven and earth, and one day will come to fully establish his kingdom on earth as in heaven. But for now, he is seeding out that kingdom in advance in and through the church, in and through the hearts of those who are yielded to him, who have bent the knee to him as king, and are learning what it means to live their lives in light of his lordship. If Jesus is not the anointed one, if he's essentially just a kind of an anomaly within human history, but just, just a human being, then there's no incarnation. There's no, there's no godness. There's no divinity to him. And once you go down that road, the, the, whole, the whole thing just becomes a house of cards that collapses. Now, what's the purpose of his death? Okay, the, the biggest thing you can probably get to is like, well, it's still some kind of an amazing symbolic demonstration of love or of sacrifice for a greater purpose. Okay, but Again, if that's all it is, there are lots of examples of that in human history. Why would we lift that one up? And if that's all it is, then it didn't really objectively do anything. Like ontologically, Jesus of Nazareth dying on a cross didn't change anything about the nature of reality. It's an amazing example maybe, but it doesn't actually do anything functionally. And then obviously if Jesus isn't God and if his death is nothing, then it's not... where you're going to move to and what all liberal theology moves to is, well, there's not really a resurrection. It's not like a bodily resurrection. Jesus was resurrected in the sense that, like, he lives on in our hearts. Like the passing of a family member who we have memories with. and Like, yeah, we remember Jesus and trying to remember his example and and be good like him. And maybe go out into the world and try and do some good things and be nice people. Which, if you add that all together... Is the, is the formulation of any man-centered religion. Some prophet has come, told you how to live, try and be a good person, try and do the right thing, and then maybe at the end of life, we'll see what happens. You have more yin than yang, or good than bad, and maybe there's an afterlife. Who knows? Whatever. Just try and be a good person. It's good to be good. It's nice to be nice. That's not, the, that's not Christianity at all. That's not the gospel at all. Christianity rises and falls. If Jesus was anything less than the Christ that his death only matters in a symbolic sense, doesn't accomplish anything. If he's anything less than a Christ, the resurrection is obviously fake or it's just a, has a spiritual meaning, but again, it doesn't actually rearrange the fabric of the cosmos. There's no forgiveness for sins. There's no victory over the curse of death. There's no eternal life on offer for anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about the resurrection, but he might as well be talking about the whole gospel. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised, and the inference there is, if Christ wasn't God, 
and if he hadn't lived a perfect life, and if he hadn't died, and if he, isn't, if he hasn't been physically raised from the dead in a resurrection body, your, your faith is futile. Paul just calls it straight up. And you're still in your sins. Nothing has changed. And that means that those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. There's no hope for them either. And then Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If, if we think of Jesus as just a good example, great guy, Paul says, that's pitiful. That is not the message that I bring, he would say. That's not the message that I bring today. If Jesus is anything other than the Christ, fully God, fully man, come to rescue and redeem us, then Christianity is an overblown exaggeration of the highest order. It's one that's peddling an illusion that should be rejected as completely false. So it's very important that we get clarity around who Jesus is because everything rises and falls. Um, <clears throat> the second thing, the reason why it's really important, that's a bit more of an abstraction, like at a big high level. Here's one of why this matters so much to you personally, every single person in this room. And that is that identity confers authority. Everybody in this room, myself included, we yield power and authority over to those that we believe are significant, who are glorious, who are weighty. We yield power and authority to those who we believe can give us power, wisdom, guidance, security in this life, and maybe even in the life to come. All of us yield power and authority to those over us whom, because of who they are, we believe on some level can save us out of the mess of our life, or at least our, the mess of this area of our life, into a good and spacious place. We yield authority and power to different voices and different people in our life who we believe can deliver, uh, uh, who, who, can, who, can, who can save us, who can deliver salvation into our lives. Save us out of the life that we have into a better life, a more abundant life. An illustration that I heard is, is good to think about this. Um, none of us are integrated whole people. In the inside of our heart, we're kind of like, we're, we're multi-divided, and we're kind of like a boardroom. So picture in your mind's eye, a big boardroom, big oak table, leather chairs, water bottle, coffee's brewing. And we have a life committee. All of us have a life committee, six, maybe 12 people on the high end, that we have given a disproportionate amount of authority and power in our lives to speak into our lives and to tell us how to live. And this committee sits around the table. Could be family members, could be friends, could be personalities, Tony Robbins, Oprah. But they're people, they're voices. Could be a, a politician or a professor, people of significant influence in your life. But these are people that you have said, I believe you hold the key to abundant life. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to heed you. I'm going to yield to your authority. Now, when you picture in your mind's eye your life committee, I want you to recognize these are voices, these are people that you have yielded authority to in your life. And in some ways, well, not in some ways, in many ways, you are letting them shape your life in ways you would never let any other human being shape When you picture that committee in your mind's eye, is Jesus sitting around the table? 
does he have a seat at the table? For many people here, they're going to say, absolutely. He is very, very important. Jesus is on my life committee. And for maybe the more braggadocious among us, we might say, and actually sometimes, I've recently, I've recently nominated him chair. I, I went from just having him part of my committee, now he's a chairperson. I give him slightly more authority than everyone else. That is a problem. When you see Jesus for who he really is, you will not simply offer him a seat at the table. What you will do when you see him for who he really is, you will invite him to come, fire your committee, and then say, what have I been doing? I want you to run my life. You hold the keys to eternal life, the kind of life that my heart is longing for, but I'm grasping at straws to, t- to, to, to grab hold of, both in this life and in the life to come, you are the waters that I've been thirsty for. Would you fire this committee, their voices? I'm, I'm not necessarily going to ignore them for the rest of my life. I'll never give them the authority they once had. You have full authority. Please run my whole life for me. Teach me what that means, Jesus. Where's Matt Ossipchuk? He's upstairs? Okay. I have a little thumbs up signal. Verse 29, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? See, if Jesus is the Christ, it completely makes sense to say, Jesus, come fire my committee, lead my life. If he's just a Christ, if he's just the Messiah, if he's just an anointed one, if he's a spiritual guru, by all means, invite him to the table. But it would be foolish to give the the full authority of your life over to him. Because at the end of the day, he's just an elevated human being. Uh, Maybe better than the average person, but not someone who is deserving of bending the knee of your life to. We believe, well, I shouldn't speak for everyone. I believe in a very high Christology. Theologians talk about a spectrum of theology, high Christology to low Christology. A low Christology would be, Jesus was a good person, he's a prophet, interesting teacher. High Christology would be, what I'm talking about today. He is the Messiah. He's the Christ, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man. Go through the I am statements in John, all the things that the Old and the New Testament declares about Jesus. There isn't even like one title that can fully capture who he is. The closest the New Testament gets is, um, you know, Thomas, where he says, my Lord and my God. It's the widest net you can cast to try and hold together the glory and significance of who Jesus is. And if you, like me, hold to a high Christology, that challenges every part of your life. You can live a very normal, regular, kind of nice civic religion life with a low Christology. Jesus around your table. Jesus is your part-time consultant, just like other people are, and you're living life on your terms. But if Jesus has fired your committee, and if he's your Lord, and he's running your life, 
That radically has, has changed, it doesn't hypothetically, it has changed how I approach my marriage, how I approach my finances, parenting, my job, my identity, my individual mission, mission of our marriage, family, of this church, how I use my body, how I love and serve other people within this community, how I seek to live out this calling to be the church, not just go to church, but to be a part of this larger mission, that all flows out of Jesus' identity. It all starts with who he is. A high Christology changes everything because identity confers authority. And if Jesus has an identity unlike any other, measures higher than anyone else, then his authority is unlike any others. And it's measures higher than anyone else. And that means that if you're a Christian, and if you think about these areas of your life, finances, parenting, jobs, how you view life, how you go through your week, and those aren't being radically changed or challenged, look at your Christology. What do you essentially believe about Jesus? Because that's evidence that whether or not you would say the right words, what you functionally believe is Jesus is totally, he's like my homeboy at my table. I listen to him once in a while. But he's not Lord. He's not, he's not running my life. I haven't given my life to him. What about you? Jesus asked them. And he asks us this morning, he's asking you, every single person in this room, he's asking you right in the eyes, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? By his very nature, Jesus makes a claim of authority on your life no one else in world history does. Who do you say that he is? Your answer to that and your response will set the trajectory of every day now moving forward out into eternity. So be clear on what the right and true answer to that question is. Let's pray. God, I have a two-part prayer this morning. My first part, God, is for Christians like myself who struggle with a low Christology in areas of our life. I struggle with not thinking and pursuing the implications of your lordship to all areas of, of my life. There's lots of places where I want you as a consultant, but not as Lord. And I want to confess that now and I want to repent of that, God. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here who would feel the same. We want to live out a high Christology. Teach us what that means, God. To live every day, progressing a little bit more in terms of how to live for your glory, to love you heart, soul, mind, and strength, holding nothing back and carrying that love and that truth into all the different facets um, that you call us into our work, our relationships, our friendships, our free time, all of it, God. And the second part of my prayer, God, is I would pray for people this morning for whom maybe through this message, in this text, they are... Maybe they're seeing something they didn't see before in terms of who you are. Maybe they've held you at bay, they've, they've resisted you, or they have just been indifferent to you because they saw you as little more than a good teacher, a guru. And God, would you stare into the eyes of their hearts, and would they come to conviction? And God, would they, even today, pray a prayer of repentance? and say, Jesus, I've been mistaken about who you are. 
I don't understand it all yet, but I know and I see that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. I can't articulate all the reasons why, but I know I need you in a way that I don't need anybody else. I want you to come in and run my life. I want to give my life to you. Would that prayer be a prayer of someone this morning? God, teach us to see you for who you really are and to live accordingly. In your mighty name, amen. Let's stand as we sing a final song.